we're pushing pause on our uh, kingdom stories, our testimonies this week, and we will be uh, beginning the parables. I love the parables. I'm really excited about this. Um, if you have a Bible, Matthew 13, page 968. This is our kingdom sermon series. We're not unable to go through every single instance maybe I would like, but uh, we're looking at the teachings of the kingdom of God, what scripture tells us about the kingdom of God. I found, I just printed off a new one. I lost that, thank you, earlier, whatever. <laughs> um, it's funny. So, um, yeah, Matthew 13. Parables are really interesting. We're going to, I'm going to read through it all to begin. We'll work through it as we, as we begin. But we'll be looking at parables for almost a month because these are the famous, what they call kingdom parables. They're all about the kingdom of God. And Jesus, uh, he, he teaches through parables, and we're going to talk about that because it's very interesting how he teaches through parables. But parables are really um, allegories, right? They, they intend to almost give, you know, a secretive meaning, if you will, that the story is intended to point towards. And usually it's our job to kind of try to decipher what the parable is about. In this instance, Jesus actually just tells us what it means, which was super easy for sermon prep. Thank you, Jesus. He just told me what it means. Um, but for the, most of the other ones, he doesn't actually do that, as we're going to see in the oncoming weeks. But parables are intended to, what we can say, they subvert our lives, and they... They also re-describe, if you will, um, reality. They intend to kind of re-describe and redefine the world and our life through the lens of the coming kingdom of God. And so, I'm going to look at this, or I'm just going to read through this beginning in chapter 13. This is the famous parable of the sower. We're going to start on verse... Um, Verse 1 here. That day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And he told, him, told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. This is a word of the Lord. So Jesus spoke in ordinary words using very ordinary imagery from day-to-day -day life with his, you know, the early first audience of this, which is first century Israelites living beneath the Roman Empire. Uh, agrarian culture, farming was uh, the, the majority occupation um, 
And still, uh, th- this one still basically communicates to us. Is, you know, we still plant seeds today, so we can kind of still gather what he is saying within uh, not that much of a stretch. But I, I don't, we're not going to look at every single little detail of this parable. Like we said, these, this is an allegory, right? It's not literally about planting seeds. There's another meaning behind this parable that Jesus opens us up to at the end. But let's begin with the setting. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been moving very quickly, very fast in his ministry. He's going here, he's going there, he's healing, he's preaching, he's teaching. Crowds are gathering around. And at this point, he has gathered so many people, right? A huge crowd has gathered, and there's so much, that so many people that he actually has to get into a boat. He's on the Sea of Galilee here, he gets on the boat, and to actually go inward a little bit away from the shore to get proper, you know, place to project and to teach to the massive crowd there on the beach beside the sea. And this is where I want to, you know, make a little comment here. The modern church in, you know, times like today, if we are not careful, we can look at that and say, well, Jesus has a successful ministry. Look at this crowd. Wow. He's doing a good job. Well done, Jesus, right? That's how it may be easy to say that, And yeah, he did gather a crowd, but here he does something very unexpected with this large crowd. And when he gets into this boat, he starts teaching in parables, allegorical parables. And for the crowd, as we're going to see, he does not even supply an interpretation. Now, why? Right? You would think that having such a large crowd, that would be the time to be crystal clear in his teaching. I mean, absolutely clear. Jesus breaks almost every preaching rule there is. If he took a preaching course at a seminary and did that, he would fail, okay? It's not how you're trained to preach. But yet, Jesus does it. Jesus always has a way of breaking apart little boxes all in our brains of how to do things, and that's why he's a master teacher. This is the first question I'm going to tackle this morning. Um, and this was the first question for his disciples. The meaning of the parable we'll get into in a minute here. But in verse 10, the disciples came to him and said, now, why do you speak in parables? Towards to, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets, or literally, mysteries, of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, to the disciples, but not to them the crowds. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is interesting, right? Jesus seems to divide into two, two sects of people here, right? According to Jesus, there are insiders, the disciples, to whom the secrets and the mysteries are given. There's also outsiders. And whichever status they are will depend on their being able to understand or not understand the parables of the kingdom of God that we'll be looking at for the next month. The insiders, according to Jesus, are the ones who have the secrets of the kingdom. But the ones who do not have Jesus says, uh, well, the ones who do have the secrets, they will only keep receiving more and more. But the ones 
who do not have, they are in danger of losing everything upon hearing the secrets. This is very odd language, right? Unexpected, maybe. This is why I love looking at the Gospels, because Jesus will always do something unexpected that'll make you say, huh, I don't have a box for that one, right? And here we are. This is a tough box we're going to look at this morning. This is very odd language from Jesus. It doesn't really sit well with our modern ears and how we think about church and how we think about teaching to crowds and to the masses. Like, I, don't, I, won't, I, don't, I wouldn't think that this room was full of 800 people. My first instinct would be, I want to teach in the most confusing way to hide the real meaning from them and not be crystal clear and then just walk away and get like six people and really tell them what I was actually talking about. It's just a strange way, right? We're going to walk through why exactly he did that because he tells us why he did that. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. He tells us. And now he quotes from Isaiah in chapter 6. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will ever be hearing but never understanding. You will ever be seeing but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. Some of your translations may say dull if you have your Bibles out. There's different ways. They will hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise... They might see with their eyes, hear with their, ear, with their ears, and understand where their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6. In that context, Isaiah, this is 700-ish years before Jesus, um, he himself accepted a call from God to go and to preach to his own people And God told Isaiah what he should expect. He said, even though they're going to see what happens through your ministry, even though they're going to hear what you're preaching, right? When they see what's happening, they're not going to actually see it because they're going to simply close their eyes. Even though they'll hear what you have to say, they're actually not going to hear anything. They're not going to even want to understand anything because their hearts have become dull right? Why wouldn't they hear anything? Because this people's heart had become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Now, calloused is one way to kind of get that word into English here, but the original Greek points like a a broader imagery, okay? It points toward the thick growth of a layer of just like gross, like tissue, a layer of grossness around the heart that becomes harder and thicker and thicker and harder and harder. The idea is, as we will see, this is a result of rejecting the word of God when we hear it. We become unhealthy on the inside. I had a gross, can I tell you really, I took this out, but I'll tell you, it's really super gross. When I was 19, this is so gross, this is my favorite meal, okay? Cheese stuffed ballpark hot dogs, okay? I would cook them in butter in a skillet. Like, shh, it's gross. It's so gross. I would add more cheese, okay? I would have a glass of milk to drink with it. I know, I did this way too much. And I, there's others, yeah, it wasn't good, okay? But imagine like in a diet like that, you, you become like 
pretty numb to vegetables. You just want the, the gross sweetness of cheese-stuffed ballpark hot dogs, right? I was really broke living on my own. You got to do what you have to do, right? Um, but, you know, on a diet like that, what happens is, like, you, you get gross on the inside, and he, that word kind of communicates that dullness of just, like, this ever-thickening layer that just starts surrounding a heart that becomes impervious, right? That when it gets so thick and so dull, it becomes a wall that something and words and messages and even the work of God will have a harder and more difficult time piercing through. That's what that word is referring to. Even worse, though, is these people, when the word of the kingdom is preached to them, and they see the ministry of God before them, they simply do this, right? They say, I'm going to look the other way. I'm going to close my eyes. I don't want to see that. They have hardened their hearts while choosing to close their eyes as to what they are seeing. Otherwise, says Jesus, if their hearts were not so dull and thickened by that nasty, gross layer around them of the continual hardening of their hearts, if they didn't just close their eyes, they might actually see and respond, and yes, I would heal them. But Jesus seemed to know, in this case, that even if he told the crowds the interpretation of the parable of the sowers, that they would not have understood due to that callous, thick layer around their hearts because they were outsiders. However, his disciples, the insiders, would receive the secrets. And earlier he seemed to apply that it may actually have been worse for the crowd to hear because if they receive and hear but reject it, they may be in danger of losing everything. There's an interesting conversation here that we have to talk about. This is the ever-complex and complicated theology of how God's complete and absolute sovereignty of knowing every single thing about the future and his predestined plans and how it interacts with our free will on this earth. What did Jesus mean by all of this? And once again, we have a text that confronts us today. I can't really sit here and tell you how all of these dynamics work with God knowing all things, but us still choosing and responding. I do firmly believe that God is sovereign. There's a multitude of scriptures, right? That he knows a word, are the words that we speak before we even speak them, says David. Ephesians 1.4 says that if you're a Christian this morning and you willfully chose to become a Christian, he says, well, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Job 42 speaks of how no plan or purpose of God can be thwarted. Limitations 3.37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless God did it. And on and on and on we have these verses that he is sovereign, he knows the future, he has a plan, and it will come to pass what he has predestined to take place. Yes, this includes your very response to hearing the gospel, the message of the kingdom, the work of God in your own life. He does know how you're going to respond before you respond because he predestined these things. Paul said this very explicitly, Romans 9, 15 through 16. Um, looking at the book of Exodus, God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You're probably sitting here like freaking out, like, what are you saying? Like, what does this mean? Okay, what do we do with those scriptures? We have to look at the whole counsel of God and learn to respond. Does this mean, Pastor Dan, that we have no free will, that we're just robots, like, you know, moving around here, and we have no control of our own selves, our own future? Is this what, you know, is this why Jesus didn't tell the crowds the meaning of the parable because he predestined them not to hear it? Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, it's not quite that simple, right? I'm trying to mess with your brains this morning because there's mystery all over the place because clearly, clearly Jesus simultaneously in our passage identifies how the hardening of their hearts was their own decision. He says that they saw it, but what did they do? They chose to close their eyes. He says, I don't want to see that. No. And they shut their eyes. There is a personal responsibility on all of us to respond to the message of the gospel. In fact, it is fully your responsibility as you will be held accountable to how you respond when you hear the truths of the gospel. But even here is not as simple as merely responding or not responding as Jesus is about to address all the multitude of forces and, and the complex uh, cultural forces that surround us in both the spiritual realm and on this world that are just at battle constantly as we hear and attempt to respond to the kingdom. It's a very complex scenario, but yet Jesus said for those who hear yet remain outsiders become in danger of losing everything because here's the message this is a warning this this parable is a warning passage in many ways if you hear the fullness of the gospel message if you actually see the work of the holy spirit before you as those who witnessed Jesus' ministry they saw, if you actually see the kingdom in breaking before you in the lives of those around you and even in small ways in your own life and yet you maintain a hard heart. You choose to close your eyes to it, and you still say, nah, I don't really, I'm not interested. I don't really care about religion. I'm just, I'm just going to go about my own way here. In fact, maybe all that's baloney. Even if I have seen it and heard it from myself, eh, I dismiss it. In the previous chapter, just a few verses before this, Matthew 12, 31, some people saw Jesus casting demons out of people, and they said, I, that, you must be doing that with the demon, right? And Jesus said, you, this, you, what? And he said, you just spoke blasphemy against the work of the Holy Spirit. You literally saw the work of God in front of you and you refused to recognize it? What is left for you to see? Hebrews 6 says it this way. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. This is Hebrews 4, verse, uh, 6, 4 through 6. And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, that's kingdom language here, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible, he says since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. A multitude of ink has been spilled trying to understand. Those are 
crazy words in Hebrews 6. What, what the core meaning is essentially, and I've wrestled with this for many years, I think the core message is this. If you hear and see the work of God and you choose to harden your heart, what else is there left for you to see? What else is there left for you to hear? You're walking on extremely dangerous territory as you still choose to not respond. And the very scary part of all of this is that divine hardening often follows when we harden our own hearts. There's a famous story in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, when God was sending plagues on Egypt. And Pharaoh kept refusing to let God's people go. There's 10 times or so it mentions that his heart was becoming harder and harder. But a certain progression happened. Okay, if you were to graph it out, I should have put a graph up here and showed you, but um, you can look at it for yourself. It first starts in Exodus 7, when the first plague came. It simply says Pharaoh's heart became hard. It just became hard. Passive, didn't really say who hardened it. Just, it just got hard. Four times more in exact, you know, uh, 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 progression there, it says that he hardened his own heart. It got more and more calloused as he saw the work of God. And he said, no, I'm still not letting these people out of Israel, even with these signs and wonders and things that are just destroying my own country. I'm still not going to release them. He literally saw the work of God and he chose to close his eyes. And then the most terrifying thing happens in Exodus 9, verse 12, the sixth dimension of his heart getting hardened. You know what it says? The Lord hardened his heart. That should, like, shake us up a bit, right? Because as Pharaoh kept hardening his own heart, now it says the Lord further hardened his heart. It didn't say that God started that from day one, right? But this, that, that's the, the, the part where we have to really ask questions to your friends. You do not want God to harden your heart. There is an indication that you invite it by hardening your own. And Paul actually talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. There's a man in his church who was just caught up in sexual sin that was just chaotic and absolutely out of control. People tried to confront him as he was bringing destruction to his family. And Paul said, you know what? Just deliver him over to his own sin. Just let him have edit. Deliver him over to Satan himself. If there's any hope of his turning, it's going to hit him hitting rock bottom in his own sin. Deliver him over. You don't want to be there, friends. Because God will break you and push you until you hit a part that you don't want to hit, right? Hopefully you'll respond. Some people don't. Even when they're pushed to the brink of their own disaster. I'm not here to describe how all of this stuff works, okay? We're going into divine mysteries, as we said, about God's sovereignty and free will. Here's what I can tell you of truths that come from Jesus' words here that we're extracting. Number one, your free will that you consciously live out carries out God's divine sovereign plan. I don't know how it works. The sooner you embrace that with faith and quit racking your brain, you'll be humbled. You realize that God is bigger than me. I don't understand, and that's okay, right? That's okay. Trust me, I had some dark places trying to get to where I can make that statement 
without struggle. I don't struggle anymore to say somehow God is sovereign and I still willfully choose. I don't know how it works, but you know what? He's bigger than me, and I'm cool with that. I'm just glad somebody's in control. I'm glad it's not me, all right? Number two, the hard work of obedience, response, or hardening your heart to the work of God, it does have lifelong and potentially also eternal consequences. And as Jesus said, you are in danger of having everything taken away from you if you see God's work and hear his word and refuse to respond. In other words, it's a dangerous thing, attending church, to hear the gospel, okay? Because there is cast on your lap this morning a responsibility to respond. Because as Isaiah said, if you choose to open your eyes and you actually listen with a willing heart, God said, I am going to heal you. Like, I will do this. It's not a matter of if you respond. And like, see, like, I will bring healing to you if you do respond. So it's in your lap at this moment. Yes, there's a sovereign plan out there. Just, I don't know how that works. But the reality is it's being cast onto your lap to say, how will you respond? Because if you seek after me, I am going to restore and I am going to heal you. But if you close your eyes and walk away, you're going to be walking on dangerous, dangerous spiritual grounds. So stop trying to fully understand the divine mysteries. Rest your mind. And allow this text to confront you this morning to say, is my heart calloused this morning? Have I helped in creating and building and thickening that dull, gross layer of cheese-stuffed ballpark hot dogs around my heart? Have I closed my eyes when God is after me and he is speaking to me and he surrounds me and I see something that he does. You know, there's a story of 10 lepers that Jesus healed, nine walk away, only one comes back. God may do something in your life, like miraculous like that, and people still have walked away, right? Will you close your eyes to his work in your life? Jesus closes this little section with a brief interlude, verse 16. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear, the disciples hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see but did not see it and hear what you hear but did not hear it. Those who see and hear flourish. So that word means makarios, it's blessed right? Blessed, flourishing, like congratulations to those who see and hear because many long to see the works of Christ and didn't see it. If you're here, you say, well, I haven't seen that kind of work before, but guess what? This is a testimony to that work, right? And I promise you, if you pursue Christ, you're going to see it one day, but even if you haven't seen it quite yet, this is a testimony to it that also demands a response from you this morning. Now, as we will close our time looking at the actual application of the parable, keeping all that complex conversation in mind, here's the actual interpretation of the parable of the sower. As you will see, there's lots of complexities involved of responding to the word of God. The goal here is that we ask ourselves, where are we in this? Because I know where God's heart is, right? We're going to see what God's heart is. And it's amazing, and it's, and it's a beautiful promise. But we're going to see of the complexities that surround us that may keep us from that. And the question that I want you to hold in front of you is, how am I going to respond to this this morning? Meaning of the parables, here we go. It begins with the work of 
the devil. This is verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is a seed sown along the path. When the gospel is preached, when the message of the kingdom of God, of his life, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, when the message of the kingdom, of the inbreaking of, of God's rule and reign into this earth, combating the spiritual kingdom that was within this, when that message is being taught, the good news of our salvation in Jesus Christ is being taught, we can assured, be assured that Satan is at work to rob you of understanding. It's like tossing seeds on the path and birds swooping down, according to the parable, and immediately eating up that seed, keeping anything from being sown in your heart. Yes, the devil is on the hunt. Just yesterday, I missed the action part, but that's okay. Um, my wife and two of my kids were in our dining room. We have a big four by four, big old window that looks into the backyard. And suddenly I hear just a huge boom, a huge thud against the window. And um, I look out just to see feathers like, you know. And so I walk over. I'm just like, what the heck happened? And I see this huge bird just fly up out of the, um, really fast off the ground to this tree. And then I look down, I see a dead, big old black crow just mangled and dead. I was like, oh. I look to the right and there's a huge red-tailed hawk just on the ground, just dazed. And of course, you know, I get excited about stuff like that. So I'm like, whoa, and I scare it, and it flies away, right? This huge thing was huge, right? The best we can gather is they were on the hunt. They caught a bird midair. These are birds of prey. And as they caught that bird midair, they were just still like going down and boom, smashed against their window, dropped their bird. They were hanging out in the trees like trying to get their bird back, but we were too like looking at them, you know, and they got scared and ran away. They were clearly hunting this bird. But they smashed against our window in mid-flight and they dropped their prey. And of course, my kids, I'm sure they'll have a science experiment this afternoon with a dead bird. We'll see how that goes. But I want to use this as an analogy here, okay? Satan and his minions are like those red-tailed hawks. A little unparable this morning, right? If you were to see them, they would indeed look beautiful, Okay? Angels are beautiful. You actually see them. Yes, they would be beautiful. Ezekiel told us how beautiful he was before he fell. But when you hear the gospel, when the seed of the kingdom is placed within you, we can expect him to swoop down and just be after you. And how do you recognize his work in your life? It's whenever you see lies. It's whenever you see accusations about how horrible of a person you are, that maybe your own conscience tells you or somebody around you when you see the destruction of life whatever form as it may be that's where we recognize the work of satan in and around us sometimes he wins and he gets the bird but the moment that you resist the moment you resist james 4 verse 7 says this he will flee he will smash into that window of the spirit if you will and he'll stop dead in his tracks. If you resist, he will flee. And then God can pick you up and restore you in your broken state. Even if that is a promise, right, Jesus provides here a warning to those who receive and hear the word, and the devil comes up and snatches away. 
because it seems for those that the battle is won. It's a warning. The next verse, this is about our own response. Verse 20, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time, little time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Now, this is very common, right? Someone hears the gospel and will become a Christian. They even may get baptized, right? But what happens within a few months or a short time, poof, where'd they go? They're a ghost. What happened, right? Usually this is a cycle with these people that come back one day when life gets hard. They return when they are in great need again and that need in that season is like this little bitty root, right? When the needy season passes and that short time, it is gone. For others, as Jesus says, it is the moment that trouble comes on behalf of being a Christian, of being misunderstood by family or being ridiculed by friends or when you're actually facing persecution, which is something we don't entirely have to worry about here. In other parts of the world, people die for becoming Christians. Families have funerals bearing empty coffins saying my son or my daughter is dead to me since they're a Christian. Right now, all over the world, this happens. And you can read about in church history when persecution came. Some Christians are like, actually, I don't know who Jesus is, Ugh, like Peter did, right? Preserve your own life. That's a little root, he says. There is no foundation to bring it to survival during tough times. This is a seed that points toward your own response. The third one is the thorns of worries and wealth. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it, making it unfruitful. In this instance, there is growth. There's this little difference here. The seed actually did pop up. It started growing, but something on the outside started growing as well, right? Crazy things happen in life. Sickness, bankruptcy, Whatever it might be comes, it can just almost, you know, uh, I don't know if you've had one of those life-changing events where everything is suddenly different because of something that happened in your life. And rather turning to Jesus for help, maybe you try to tackle this in your own abilities. And in essence, you just, when you do that, you're planting also thorn bushes next to you. This one to grow up and start choking out the word of God in your own life. You'll become a slave to your worries. You'll begin boxing and punching the air as if you could win, trying to resolve everything in your own strength. And oftentimes you may feel alone because you think, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? I'm trying to get through this and I, what is going on? And that is how a hard heart can actually develop. All the time, however, you're the one. This allowing this thorn bush to come and choke out, right? The word of God. And if you just, your own worries start choking him out. And he simply is trying to say, if you're listening, I'm telling you to stop and to be still and to know that I am God. But yet we are hard work away trying to save and help ourselves. The second instance he mentions is some, uh, the deceitfulness of wealth, right? The idea is that when life is good, uh, many often begin, you know, just kind of hit cruise controls, like everything's cool. I got money, I got a house, I got clothing, I got whatever. God, like, do I need him? 
because I don't need anything. My fridge is full, you know, I'm not maybe rich, like, you know, billionaire or something, but I'm fine. Like, what can God do for me? I have everything I need, and apparently I've done that for my own, etc., and so forth. Those are just thorns choking up the word of God, thinking that you have indeed saved yourself through your own wealth. You're bowing down to the wrong things. You're loving the wrong things, says Jesus. But here we get to the the good stuff here in verse 23. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil, like the good, rich, black, soft, spongy soil, right? He is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Imagine planting, you know, one tomato bush and getting a hundred tomato bushes worth of tomatoes from one plant. This is an intentional exaggeration, but the next person may get 30-fold or 60-fold. He's intentionally exaggerating to say, you have no idea what happens and the fruit that can be born if the seed lands on good soil. You, it will blow your mind to see the fruit that comes from it because it's, it's going to be literally supernatural. It's going to be unbelievable, the result of the seed of the kingdom taking root in your own life if you respond to it. I will bear fruit, and it will shock you just how much fruit will be born in your life. This is how this sermon ends today. The plea for you this morning is what he mentioned at the very beginning. He said, if you have ears this morning, you need to hear. If you have ears, listen. It is a call to respond to the work of God this morning. If there's something in your life that you must confront, if you're hearing this, you recognize somewhere along the seeds, maybe you're somewhere there. Maybe you're recognizing that you're just, the devil is just after you this morning in your own family. There's so much just destruction happening and you feel helpless or, or, or maybe you've allowed the love of your own money and wealth to choke out God's work in your life or maybe you're just here with a hard heart saying, I don't even believe in this stuff anyway. I'm just here, and I don't care about this. If that is you this morning, my question is, will you at least take these words seriously in the call to respond and have an open heart to say, Lord, can you really help me here? Can you really be the one that can reverse things? Can, you re- can your seed of the kingdom really be planted so much that it, it bears a hundred plus fruit fold in my own life? Really? And the answer is yes, if you're willing to submit yourself into him. If you're willing to turn yourself over to him in full. He wants all of you, friends. And he will plant that seed and it will flourish. Will you respond this morning? Um, The danger, as we said, and we'll close with this. If you choose not to, if you leave this place and you choose not to respond, you are in danger here of letting that layer get thicker and thicker and thicker. I don't want that for you. There's so much better in store for you than letting that thick layer get thicker and duller. We're going to take communion here in a minute, which is a wonderful time to respond. Um, uh, Joel's going to come up and lead us, but let me pray for you um, beforehand. Jesus, we, we know that you can do an amazing work in our life, Lord, that you want to um, change us from the inside out, Lord. 
You want to restore us to be true image bearers of you, people who are truly loving like you love, who are walking in grace and forgiveness with those who sin against us, Lord, those who um, don't seek retaliation but rather bring meals to those who offend us. And Lord, we know that uh, for the bitterness and just uh, uh, fallenness in our own hearts and lives, Lord, that you can plant your seed and reverse those as we repent and as we turn, Lord. You can truly change us from the inside out and fill us with so much joy and peace and contentment. Even if the world is chaotic around us, Lord, we can find joy in you beyond our circumstances. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who is hearing this this morning and they have been kicking against you. That they had just been almost intentionally just closing their eyes and hardening their heart, Lord. Just not wanting to let go fully. Lord, please, would you break down? Would you pierce through that dull layer, Lord? Lord, I want to pray the hard prayer, though, for those who still walk away this morning without responding. There's those who know that there's sin, destructiveness in their own life. They say, I still, I still want it. Lord, in your grace, but still, Lord, as a father would, would you break them, Lord? I ask that you would preserve them in their life, but Lord, would you break them until that dull layer is broken off, until those chains of sin is set free, Lord? And they are in you, and they are flourishing in you. Holy Spirit, we ask Jesus this morning, Lord, send your spirit down in this room to do a work in the hearts of your people as we now transition to remember your life and your death for us, Lord, the body broken and the blood shed for us. We love you, Jesus, Lord. We can walk away with hope this morning, knowing that if we want to respond to you, Lord, you will heal us you said you would. And isn't that hope that we leave here this morning, Jesus? It is in your name we pray. Amen.